welcome to Richard's Hopelands, The Other Side of Midnight. So this is a beautiful evening on the East Coast and the West Coast. We're enjoying beautiful weather. And regretfully, Richard cannot join us tonight. He sends his best to all of you. I'm very excited with the guest we have tonight is Christopher Loring Knowles. He's a featured guest on our show many times. And he's bringing new information that'll just rock your socks off. The show tonight is called Disclosure and Apocalypse, our cinnamon, cinemas, <laughs> synonyms. <laughs> so if you want to find the show page, you'll go to the other side of midnight.com and click on that banner, Disclosure and Apocalypse, our synonyms, and it will take you to the show page. So Christopher is as I mentioned, a frequent guest, and he is the author of The Secret Sun. Christopher Loring Knowles is the author of the Eagle Awarding Our Gods Wear Spandex, The Secret History of Comic Book Heroes, co-author of The Complete X-Files behind the series, The Myths and the Movies, and The Secret History of Rock and Roll, The Mysterious Roots of Modern Music. He was an associate editor and columnist for the five time Eisner Award-winning comic book artist magazine, as well as a writer and reviewer for the UK magazine Classic Rock. He's appeared on ABC's 2020 and VH1's Metal Evolution and several radio shows, including Man Cow in the Morning, National Public Radio, and The Voice of America. He has appeared in several documentaries, such as Wonder Woman, Daughter of Myth and the Man, the Myth Superman. He was invited to lecture on science fiction, mysticism, and mythology at the legendary Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California in 2008 and 2009. And he blogs regularly on The Secret Sun. Welcome, Chris. Good to have you back on the show. Thank you, Cynthia. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I know. I was just uh, so excited when I was putting up your page to see the items that you've lined up for us. It's going to be an amazing background as far as, far as the background and also what's going on currently. So would you like to start off with our current uh, situation or do you want to go back in time? What's your preference? Um, well, let's start what's going on now. I mean, I think a lot okay. of your listeners will probably be familiar with the um, ongoing disclosure process that uh, seems to be emanating from the uh, United States Navy in particular. And we can go into a little bit of that. Um, I think it's sort of revealing that the um, United States Navy is the, probably the uh, most powerful force, not just military force, but economic and political force in the world at this moment. Um, and I think that what we're seeing with the Navy has a lot to do with the challenge uh, being posed by um, China. And um, China is trying to build its own blue water Navy to uh, regain control of the China Sea and the Indian Ocean. And I think this, you know, the backdrop here is, is very interesting. I mean, the Various streams and currents running through this whole process are uh, fascinating, um, coming from a, a very unlikely source in, in, in 
the person of Tom DeLonge, former uh, guitarist and songwriter for a, a punk band called Blink-182, currently in a rock band called uh, Angels and Airwaves, and um, had sort of gotten in touch with a lot of people, uh, interesting people, Hal Putoff, uh, Christopher Mellon, uh, Luis Elizondo, uh, a number of different people from military and intelligence who so, approached him and knew that he was interested in UFOs and knew he had his abiding interest in study in the, in the subject and uh, for some reason chose him to uh, be the, the, the front man for this, uh, what's called the To the Stars Academy, and which is really behind a lot of these stories that we're seeing in the uh, New York Times and the uh, Washington Post and so on and so forth. So we're really uh, a very unlikely source for, uh, you know, what is um, mm -hmm. a world-changing project, I think. I'm curious, how do, how do we know that they went to him? I mean, is it because of the work he's doing, or there's actually some kind of uh, information saying that they reached out to him? Well, um, he had made the claim, and the claim was later verified by a number of different sources. I see. So, um, you know, and Christopher Mellon is uh, a scion of the uh, Mellon family, the, the well-known uh, dynasty, Mellon dynasty, which is a very interesting <laughs> source for his uh, involvement. But he was involved in uh, all sorts of interesting military and intelligence and, and high-ranking governmental work. So we're really dealing with a, a very interesting and powerful staff of individuals that are involved with, um, you know, a person who could, you know, if you were uncharitable, could be considered a has-been rock star. And um, interestingly enough, I mean, um, you know, so Tom DeLonge was sort of, you know, um, the front man for this process, and it appeared on a, um, a, a very well-known and, and popular um, web show and podcast called the Joe Rogan Experience. And um, he, he did uh, extremely badly. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so since then, this uh, gentleman called uh, Luis Elizondo has sort of taken his place as the um, uh, publicity force. And, and what is Luis? Is, is he a musician as well? No, uh, he's um, intelligence, uh, CIA um, Pentagon, um, just, uh, you know, pretty straight ahead, uh, intelligence operative. And mm. the interesting thing is that there's been a, a, a great deal of controversy over his in, involvement in this, uh, program, which is, um, has a name that I, I will not try to, uh, <laughs> mangle, but it was also known as the ATIP program, which has to do with, um, you know, anonymous or anomalous aircraft. So, you know, basically what we've been seeing uh, for some time now, and, and the, the process seems to really have kicked up again, is um, the, U the United States Navy, um, without which the uh, world economy as we know it would uh, cease to exist, incidentally, um, mm -hmm. this phenomenally powerful organization um, basically releasing a, a number of different accounts of uh, pilots 
in, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, the, the, the Navy Air Force is, <laughs> is probably as powerful, if not more so, than the, uh, the United States Air Force. Really? Uh, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. We can get into that uh, later on because it, it ties into some of these personages that seem to weave in and out of all these stories. So um, the uh, Navy has been releasing a lot of accounts of uh, pilots, you know, jet pilots, fighter pilots, who've been um, encountering and sort of been stymied by these uh, odd objects. Um, and there was the uh, famous Tic Tac video where this uh, object that had apparently been sighted for a number of days flying at um, enormous rates of speed uh, and I guess harrying or menacing these pilots and uh, these aircraft carriers and so on and so forth. Um, you know, that, that video was released uh, in 2017, and we can get into that because that's a very interesting coincidence there. But also that, um, you know, we're, we're in a situation where, uh, you know, with the so-called Nimitz incident, which um, uh, involved the Nimitz carrier group in um, the Southern California and Baja California and Mexico, but also a number of accounts uh, emanating from a, a, a totally different carrier group off the East Coast, uh, Central East Coast of the United States, uh, you know, around Virginia and so on and so forth. So uh, it's a very strange and interesting process where um, the military for uh, 70 plus years has denied um, the existence of UFOs and denied that they've ever encountered any kind of unexplainable or anomalous aircraft is suddenly um, being very forthcoming about this. And the interesting thing is that the way they're rolling it out, I mean, it's, it's an interesting process that I, I know Richard has talked about, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the, um, the Brookings uh, Institute mm -hmm. and uh, their, their recommendations for acclimating people to, uh, to UFOs and so on, that... Um, I think we're seeing a continuation. Of the, I think we're seeing the next phase. So basically what we, we had starting in the late 40s was a, a process in which um, science fiction films and uh, contactees and, and all these kind of sources that people would not necessarily take very seriously were um, bombarding the, the mass media. And this is a process that lasted for decades up until yeah. uh, fairly fairly recently, and um, with all sorts of science fiction films and uh, you know X Files, of course, and Outer Limits and The Invaders and all kinds of uh, you know shows like Falling Skies and, and a lot of these sort of UFO colonization narratives on uh, cable channels and so on. So uh, we seem to be at the at the end of that process, and, and I think that that, that acclimatization process has sort of almost peaked in 2009, 2010 or so. Uh, we just saw this avalanche of um, not very memorable or very quality uh, UFO and abduction movies and cartoons and so on. And now it seems to be the next part of the process. And I, I think what we've seen... And I think this is the desired intent, is that there almost seems to be, among a lot of people who don't really consider the implications of all this, it seems to be almost like an apathy or a, um, I don't know, I don't want to say necessarily, a, you know, a disbelief, but just like 
Oh, well, you know, I, I think we've had a, a generation of kids, an entire generation now, that have grown up seeing not only um, UFO and alien narratives uh, in popular culture, but have seen thousands, if not tens of thousands of, um, of UFO videos on YouTube and, and the Internet. Right. You know right. what I'm saying? And um, I think, uh, you know, contrary to what people say, I, I think that the process where, where you can go onto YouTube, and it's interesting, you know, I, I, I told you that I had a computer crash, and when I was going through my backups, I was trying to, you know, delete a lot of files and so on, and I was looking through, um, you know, a, a tube uh, program that I have that, that saves uh, YouTube, and I had hundreds and hundreds of these, what I consider uh, genuine UFO um, sightings on, on film. Oh. And they're so mm -hmm. common that, I mean, of course, there are lots of silly CGI fakes and so on and, and, and just kind of nonsense. But there are just um, so many uh, UFO videos uh, online that um, it just becomes like, yeah, I get the picture. But right. you know, I... inter interestingly enough, I had um, my family and I, starting in 2015 uh, and starting with my son, um, had a, a, a little UFO flap of our own. Uh, my son worked at a, um, a very posh and upscale um, golf course here in New Jersey. And um, he and his friends, you know, they, they were packing up for the night and just saw these three, three UFOs hovering over the, uh, the woods. And they just, they stay, you know, they, they hovered there and it was, um, they, they, they took videos and so on of, uh, of these things on their phones. And, um, you know, of course, it's very difficult to um, take pictures of something in the sky with your, your phone, especially when it's yes. dark. But, um, you know, it, you, you see it well enough. And, um, and, you know, they got, they just, the, the UFOs were there so long that they got tired of it and just left. You know, they just like, Oh my okay. gosh. Yeah. And then well, I know. Go ahead. Yeah. I would just add that the young people I know, they just take it as a given. Of course there are UFOs. I mean, they don't even question it anymore. Well, that's, I think, that, see, but I think that's the, 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 this, the process that I know Richard has spoken about at length that I think it's the process of, um, acclimatizing people to uh, to this reality. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I'm curious about is, you know, they've been using the film industry to introduce the idea that, in fact, they really are out there. And, like, some of them are so negative, like the alien. And then you have others, like, of course, Star Trek or the Arrival, Arrival, that recent one. Mm -hmm. And... Are you noticing a trend leaning more one way or the other, or are they just like presenting both sides? Well, I got to tell you something. You'll you'll hear about movies like Aliens or um, The Arrival, but there are tons and tons and tons. Uh, if if you if you have Amazon Prime and and use Amazon Prime Video. Um, just tons of independent and low-budget films on, on UFOs and aliens and so on. Um, so much so that it, it kind of boggles your mind because it, there seems to be this entire genre that 
escapes the, the mainstream's notice, but these films just keep getting made. And a lot of them, you know, are very interesting films. I mean, you know, they're obviously low budget films, but um, some of them are very interesting, but it's, it's almost impossible given the volume of these films to determine any kind of trend lines because there's mm. so much of it. And there, there are so many viewpoints uh, on offer that you can't really get a sense of where the thinking is. I, I think it's mm. just, um, you know, it's just very difficult to do so. But um, getting back to what I was saying about the UFO, so um, uh, back in, I guess, 2015, 2016, um, we were driving up to New Hampshire to um, visit my, um, my grandmother because she was having her 100th birthday party. And uh, oddly enough, we were driving through the town that um, one of these Navy pilots who have uh, well-known Navy pilots now who are in the media all the time, uh, the town that he lives in. And uh, it's, it's fascinating to me because this gentleman is from Ohio, but he lives oh. in this area of New Hampshire, which is um, quite the UFO hotspot. And um, if you go online, uh, go on YouTube and just, you know, New Hampshire, you know, Salem, New Hampshire, you know, that UFOs, orbs, you know, particularly orbs in this case, um, that you're going to find, you know, dozens of videos. Uh, and I find it fascinating that this gentleman is, is living in that area. And this is also the area that's right near what's called America's Stonehenge, which is uh, another interesting aspect of this because a uh, ritual seems to be tied up in this um, very tightly. And I think that's something that, you know, would kind of confuse people uh, like the late, great Stanton Friedman or any kind of, uh, you know, I guess more today, somebody like Richard Dolan, but people who are more nuts and bolts oriented would overlook the, um, the vast and complex and multivaried uh, ritual aspect to this and, and, and how much the occult plays in this. But be that as it may, I mean, so we were coming up uh, Route 93, which would, you know, ultimately, if we kept on, it would take us to where the Betty and Barney Hill uh, abduction took place up in Indian Head. But mm -hmm. uh, so we're coming in and we see this plane taking off from uh, Manchester Airport. And it was, you know, it was pretty low. I mean, it probably was maybe a thousand feet up in the air, maybe less, maybe five or six hundred feet. And uh, we see these two orange orbs. Um, that were like, you know, bird dog in it. They were like flying around it. And I was like, are they trying to make that plane crash? And, you know, so they're sort of flying around this plane. I don't even know if the, the pilot actually even noticed it. And then they, they sort of did that as, you know, the plane sort of came near our position. And then they flew directly over our, our car. You know, we were just watching these orange orbs. They just like fly right over the car. And it's like, you think like, oh, well, you know, you, you probably hear a hundred stories like that and people, they are some kind of misidentification. But like I said, you can go online and, and see videos of these things. I mean, I've they're actually been... so common that, that people don't mm -hmm. even pay attention to them anymore. Well, I've been so curious. Is there a sense of scale when you were looking at them so close? Did you have any sense of scale, what size these orbs were? I mean, are they like the size uh, of the craft that they were flying around or bigger or smaller or? 
Well, I guess in relation to the craft, in relation to the cockpit, I, I, I would imagine that they would have been maybe about five or six feet in diameter, maybe more. Ah. I mean, maybe mm-hmm. somewhere between five and ten feet. I so mean, not that our, very big. Not, well, from not our big position, they, they were like the size of almost like, you know, they almost look like basketballs, you know. But uh, uh-huh. you know, making adjustments and allowances for the, for the distance, uh, I would have said that they were probably maybe about 10 feet in diameter at the, at the most, and mm-hmm. maybe five at the least. I mean, they were not so, excessively large. Mm-hmm. So it makes me think either they're ro- remote control or there are one or two beings in there, or they're super small beings. <laughs> there are more, you know, I mean, like, because, I mean, how many people or beings could you fit in such a small craft? I mean, well, there's got to be... Yeah, I mean, I think that they are beings. I think that I don't think they're craft. I think that they're beings. I think. That, oh, you think the orb is the being? Yeah, I mean, you know. Oh. The the one thing that I really got a sense of when I saw it is that they were intelligent, and they were uh-huh. reacting to this this flight of this plane in an intelligent manner, and I, I thought uh, somewhat menacing manner in in some regard. Mm. Um, maybe just uh, like almost like a trickster kind of thing, but um, I, they they were um, translucent. They were not opaque. Because mm-hmm. uh, I've um, also heard the suggestion that they could be like Earth diva spirits, like you know, um, multi-dimensional beings. I, yeah, I think that's that's entirely possible. But like the most recent um, sighting that we had was a um and and this is a this is an interesting story because this sort of ties into what a lot of people who studied this phenomenon for a long time will say you know people you know particularly i'm thinking of people like uh jean keel and uh jacques valet and uh, amy michelle people who sort of took a more mm, i don't want to say supernatural but uh you know there's some aspect to this phenomenon that does not work the way you would expect metal craft mm-hmm. from a distant planet um, coming here to monitor us for some reason or another. Because, uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll just give you a little bit of background. Uh, one night I was working, and uh, while I was working, I had a, um, a documentary, a uh, Netflix documentary on, you know, I was just sort of listening to it while I was working. It's a, a movie called um, The Man Who Sees UFOs, I think it's called. And it's about this guy down in Monterey, uh, California, uh, who's taken hundreds of videos, predominantly of orbs, hundreds if not thousands of, of, of video uh, over the past de- several decades, um, mm-hmm. and just seems to have this uh, ability to, in, you know, intuit when these 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 craft or objects or whatever you choose to describe them as would be um in the area so i watched this film and and i was you know it was was after midnight and i was going to take the dogs out and i was just thinking about like you know because i've been to monterey and you know familiar with the area and i was just sort of thinking you know like there's been a lot of ufo activity going back to uh spanish colonization days um you know there's a um, a very famous uh a, a mission near uh, Big Sur that has a lot of um, activity noted for, for several centuries. And I was just sort of thinking about the placement and all this sort of thing like that. 
So I'm taking the dogs out and you know waiting to do their business, and and I look up in the sky and I see what you know looks like a plane, and it looked it looked rather low. It looked you know it, it looked a bit low for a plane, and it comes out of the um, the cloud uh, cover, and then it stops. <laughs> I'm like, what? Okay, yeah, planes don't stop. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> not at all. And um, what? I, I realized is that um, it was a chevron-shaped UFO, and mm. I just looked at it for a while because I was just like, "Is that what I think it is?" And I went inside and I got my glasses, you know, because I just thought, "Well, maybe I'm just, you know, misperceiving something." And I'm looking at the with my glasses, and and then I get the, uh, you know, not great set of binoculars out, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, "That's." Uh, Chevron UFO. That's a classic. Is that Chevron the one UFO. posted on the page? Yes. Is that the yeah, okay? It's number eight. If yes. anyone wants to see, it's number eight on the page. Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, that sat there for a very long time, <laughs> and um, I, you know, I, after, after a while, I, I called my wife out, and and she uh, took pictures of it, and um, and again, it's very difficult to take pictures of a of a distant object in the sky at night. But she got, I think, a, a couple of uh, pretty impressive images of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just watched it for it. And it was incredibly bright. And it was below the cloud cover, which is, um, you know, the clouds, it sort of came in. And, and I looked at the ceiling uh, that night. And I think this, the cloud ceiling was maybe like 3,000 feet, something like that. So the cloud ceiling was 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 rather low, and this thing was ben- was beneath the cloud cover, as you, you can see in one of the photos. Mm-hmm. And um, we just watched it for a long time, and then, like, uh, you know, my daughter got up, and and we, you know, we told her to come out and and, and look at this thing with us. And um, the you know the pictures don't really do it justice because it was very bright and. Um, but it was, again, that classic Chevron UFO. And the interesting thing is that um, not long after, or a couple months after, that there were sightings of this, um, these objects all over the country. There was uh, one down in Austin, Texas, and uh, I believe in Colorado and, and also in California. So there were these objects showing up in the western half of the uh, country as well. And... Um, you know, we sat there, we watched this thing for a very long time. It was really interesting. My goodness. And, and it was making these weird, um, it's making these weird movements because it was, it was moving in like an, almost like an L shape. It would move vertically and then it would lower and then it would move into the distance. So it would move. Was there any, is there anything in your area that you think it would have been observing that would have been of interest to it where you, where you live? I have no idea, but you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's very hard to say, uh-huh. but, you know, this area is very, the, the area I live in is very strange. Um, mm. there's a lot of, um, strange things, uh, that occur around here. Um, back in two, 2010, I had had a, um, I was taking the dog for a walk at night. It was, it was late at night. And, um, we both sort of stopped because this, uh, luminous figure stepped out of the woods. It was about four feet tall. And seemed to be featureless, and um, st- you know, stood in our path. You know, we would have, you know, down the street. It was maybe about two hundred feet down the road, maybe one hundred and fifty feet. And um, 
just stood there. And, and it's interesting because my dog is a collie. And I don't know if you know about collies, but they're very barky. And she's a very barky dog. And <laughs> she out there, And she was just transfixed by this thing. She was just like, what is that? You know, if it was a person. Uh-huh. She, and, and, it, and of course, it was, it was auto-luminous. But the, and, and this is getting back to what I'm talking about. So that, you know, I, as soon as I saw that object, I, I went back home and I got on Facebook and I was like, I think I saw a ghost or something, you know, and then started this huge thread with all these people asking me about it and stuff. But the next day I had driven down that street and I, when I went to the end of the street, uh, there was one of those big sort of um, traffic LED signs, you know, that the, the traffic uh-huh. department put up. And it, it was saying, you know, the, the message was that um, someone had been hit in a hit and run accident at that, that spot. And, um, you know, if you know anything about it to call the police and so on and so forth. (laughs) So I just thought it was interesting that, you know, I see this object and the next day it turns out that there'd been a hit and run accident, you know, at the end of that street. And that to me is like, you know, there's something else going on. There's something else. You think in some way it's related uh, I, I couldn't help but think it was related. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. it, it seemed to me to be too much of um, a coincidence, because mm-hmm. um, you know I'd read I've read uh, accounts of, of people. Ig- ig- g- no. Go ahead. Yeah, let's hold that thought because we're coming up on the break right now. You're listening to the other side of midnight. The show tonight is Disclosure and Apocalypse, our synonyms, and our wonderful guest is Christopher Loring Knowles. And we shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to Richard C. Hoagland's The Other Side of Midnight. Our guest tonight is Christopher Loring Knowles, and the show is Disclosure and Apocalypse, our synonyms. So let's pick up on that story you were telling us about, Chris. 
Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it was it was the orbs that were going around the thing, and then you went down there and you saw that there had been an accident. Oh right, no, that was yeah. the, that wasn't an orb. That was a um, some a luminous figure, uh, four oh. foot tall. You know, which I which I've read about in other books. I mean, I I remember that. Um, reading a, a, a very chilling account of a, a gentleman in Scotland who um, had encountered one of these uh, these beings and, and decided to, like, chase it and um, had uh, ca- came down with a radiation poisoning. Uh, so there's, a, you know, there's a number of these stories. And um, the interesting thing is that, you know, I went through uh, most of my life... <laughs> without having any of these kind of experiences. And then they all sort of happened in a cluster. And I, I, I often wonder why exactly that is. I mean, they're not things that I spend a lot of time really thinking about. You know, I, I recorded them and I documented them as best I could. But it just seems to me that it just seems a, a bit weird that you know, these kind of occurrences would would happen in a cluster after, you know, having only a couple of, of very brief and fleeting and uh, it, largely ambiguous uh, sightings, you know, earlier in my life. But, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with um, things that we don't necessarily take account uh, when we talk about the subject. And like I said, I mean, I don't believe that this is a technology that, that we could even maybe even recognizes the technology. I think we're looking at something that is truly alien, is truly uh, unknowable. Like this is why I don't pay a lot of attention to like crashed saucer stories and and so on like that. I mean, it just seems to me that like seeing these objects in the sky, um, you kind of get the sense that you're looking at something that does not make sense in our physical world, and, and, and specifically under our physics. You know, for instance, the uh, Chevron UFO, which, which I said I saw um, video of, of, an identic, of identical objects uh, on, the, um, on YouTube, and, and I recommend that anyone who's interested in this go on and, and look at these objects yourself. Wasn't that it's, like the same shape that appeared in the Phoenix Lights? Where there was those... uh, no, that was a tri- I believe that was a triangle. Uh, oh, okay. I, I could be mistaken. <laughs> but... Um, when you look at the when you look at the, uh, the the object that I saw and and the objects that that other people were fortunate enough to uh, have filmed, that um, it doesn't make any aerodynamic sense at all. Um, it's you know it's a V shaped with these huge lights that mm-hmm. uh, you know there were six I believe there were six lights on the on the you know the the wing you know it's basically a flying. Right. Um, and, and, and I'll tell you something, I did a lot of research cause I was saying, you know, some people were saying this was a drone or this was some sort of, you know, because I'm not that far from McGuire air force base. Oh. McGuire air force base is, uh, probably maybe two and a half hour drive from here. So, you know, airtime, that would be much shorter. Nothing. But, yeah. Yeah. But I, I just could not find anything even remotely like this, this object, um, Online, and you now, mind you, I'm not saying. I mean, this this Chevron object could could well be some sort of highly advanced aircraft, but I just I couldn't understand the the construction of it. 
and mm-hmm. why you would have an object, um, what aer- aerodynamic purpose these enormous lights that take up the, 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 the lion's share of the surface of the underside of the, of the V-shape, what, what possibly you would choose to do that? I mean, you can have extremely luminous lights uh, on any kind of aircraft and, and, and have them be rather small, uh, especially these days. I mean, you can create a very bright light with very small um, uh, bulbs, essentially. So, yeah, but maybe it wasn't for lighting. Maybe that surface area is for somehow creating energy. Maybe it's well, part of the propulsion. It's entirely possible, too. I mean, it, you know, they, maybe those lights are not lights. They're some sort of highly advanced... Uh, plasma. Keith, Keith is saying plasma in the chat yeah. window. It's entirely... I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, when I was looking... And like I said, this object was rather low. Um, I would say it was maybe uh, 2,000 feet in the air, maybe even lower. So that's not even a mile. Um, so I'm also curious about that, the Chevron that you saw, are you saying that you could see sky behind it so that it actually was a Chevron and not a triangle? Yes. Just in the dark? Yeah. Okay. And if you look right. at the photos. One of the photos, again, it's very hard to take <clears throat> pictures of, of an object at night without right. professional equipment. And my wife was just using a, a normal mm-hmm. digital camera. But... Um, and, and if you look at, uh, again, photo, uh, number eight picture on uh, pictures, uh, radio with pictures, um, you can see that, that the construction of the object very clearly, which is remarkable to me, you know, given that the uh, distance and the lighting. But, and there um, also seems to be like a light on this. I mean, there's the chevron shape. And then I'm talking about the close up on the right hand side. Then there seems to be a light that doesn't seem consistent with that chevron pattern it's like an extra light you yeah know what i mean that big one at the bottom i think that's probably a, a bit of camera blur ah, uh-huh. but you know it's in, again it's entirely possible i mean this thing was bright this mm-hmm. and yeah, it was really i've never seen anything in the sky this bright in my life mm-hmm. it looks really bright even in the small view where it's very small on the image it's as bright as the moon it looks enormous actually and and look at the cloud cover look how mm-hmm. it's beneath the cloud cover so it's it's mm-hmm. not uh you know some sort of celestial object that we were misidentifying um so i don't know you know it was uh, it was very unusual but i think getting back to what we're talking about as far as disclosure i think what's going on is that i again it's a, a climatization process that so many people have seen like X amount of movies, E.T., Close Encounters, so on and so forth. And enough people now have either seen these objects in the sky or have seen YouTube videos of them that I, I think it's sort of like, okay, now we can up the ante a bit. Now we can go to the next stage of the process. You know, we can go to the next phase of the program, essentially, is I, I think what's going mm-hmm. on. And I think that you know the way, and the way it's being rolled out is very interesting because there's almost like a sense of plausible deniability. You know, who is this Luis Luis Elizondo guy? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is was he really a, an intelligence operative, or you know, is he just blowing smoke? Was he really involved in this program, or is he 
just some sort of pencil pusher who was just doing something totally unrelated. But that's always how these things go. It's always rolled out with a sense of that they can always pull back if they have to. But I, I well, think, so go ahead. So, so with this rolling out and the Navy's announcing they're seeing this UFO and that UFO, they're just like not addressing the fact that all these years they've been saying, no, there isn't any. There aren't any. Now suddenly they, <laughs> you know, they, they don't even address the the contradiction. Maybe they think people have forgotten that they were saying no. Well, I'll tell you something. It, it, it always makes me wonder because the Navy, um, and we can get into this because the Navy has played a very strange game with this this topic. A lot of the responsibility for investigating UFOs has been kicked over to the Air Force, right? Blue Book, Grudge, Twinkle, all these uh, different programs um, that sort of ended with a Condon report in the late 60s. But the um, the Air Force is, is very much uh, the junior partner in the, uh, the military uh, industrial <laughs> echelon. You know, the Navy is the, the top dog. The Navy rules mm. the roost. Um, the Navy um, is very interesting because a lot of people will look at the Army and the Marines and, you know, particularly the Army because the Army is so huge and not mm-hmm. really pay attention to the, the power and the equipment and the scope and the reach that the United States Navy has. Uh, and the United States Navy is the... Um, most powerful military force in human history. Um, I had no idea. Absolutely, yeah. There's, there's nothing even uh, second. Uh, there's not even a close second in, in, in the annals of history. The, the United States Navy is their strength and their power and their reach, which is you know important in this regard, is um, is unprecedented. But what we saw with the UFO flaps with Kenneth Arnold and, and Roswell um, in the late 40s is that the, um, the Navy took a much different tack than the other branches of the service. I mean, you didn't really have the uh, Air Force until a bit later because it was still the Army Air Force. Was, the Air Force was still a branch of the or a sub-branch of the United States Army. But you had a lot of um, in very powerful and interesting uh, military personnel in the Navy who were directly involved in this, and, and particularly a um, organization that a lot of your listeners will probably be familiar with, and that's an organization called NICAP. And NICAP was one of the earliest and, and probably the most impressive of the... Um, major UFO uh, research organizations, of, of which I think the only one active and, and still considerable it would be MUFON. But NICAP was a, a totally different thing altogether because NICAP had um, military people involved in it. And it had people who were involved with the uh, military industrial complex on the board of directors, mind you. I mean, th- this was like, uh, there's a guy named, um, just check his name again because I always seem to I always seem to mispronounce his name but um, uh, Thomas Townsend Brown was the guy who started uh, NICAP and but uh, he had a, a deep and very highly uh, intimate relationship with the United States Navy uh, throughout his career 
but then um, a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Donald Kehoe, who's a, a retired um, Marine uh, major, uh, took control of the um, the board, along with a uh, uh, a gentleman from the um, a rear admiral from the uh, United States Navy called Delmer uh, Farney. So you had this organization that was a very influential organization and, and took this topic very seriously that was uh, staffed with um, high-ranking uh, military personnel, including uh, uh, a vice admiral uh, by the name of Roscoe Hillencotter. And, uh, you know, he was well known as a, a, a UFO skeptic, but he, he chose to... Um, you know, serve on the board of the governors of, of this organization. And then a, a, another interesting uh, personage that we should go into some detail on is a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Rear Admiral uh, Herbert Knowles, Herbert Bain Knowles, uh, no relation, by the way, um, who uh, was involved in a number of uh, very interesting cases, in, including the Betty and Barney Hill uh, case. I mean, he was actually uh, a neighbor of the Hills, uh, oh. <laughs> he was, yeah. So, uh, and and another neighbor of his was a um, uh, one of the first UFO channelers, uh, one by the name of Francis Swan, who um, had claimed to channel uh, an alien intelligence called AFA. And uh, AFA was a, a very interesting uh, case study. But so we had a lot of people in the Navy, and and. The admirals, the admiralty in particular, were very interested in this topic. Now, I've heard a lot of different um, explanations for this. I mean, there's, there would be like sort of the um, skeptical uh, explanation that this is all part of disinformation, that this is all uh, psychological operations and so on and so forth. And then on the opposite end of that spectrum, we would say, well, you know, the Navy had a lot of experience with UFOs, but in, in particularly USOs, uh, uh, unidentified submersible objects. So um, there, there's a, a, a great range of opinion. But the one thing that is clear is that the Navy, in contradistinction to the Air Force, is that it's really the Navy who's taken the lead on this process. It's, uh, it's, it's actually rather remarkable. And um, again, opinions uh, differ on, on why exactly this is, but you know, what can't be um, argued with is, is the amount of interest that the, uh, the branch of the service has taken. And uh, well, has the, has the air force been like in denial that they're there? I mean, is there, is this competition between the two forces? Well, the Air Force, <clears throat> so the Navy really took the lead in the late 40s, and the, the, the Navy sort of jumped on this project, but with the uh, creation of the Air Force, um, since these were flying objects, right, I mean, objects that are seen in the sky, that the onus was sort of put on the Air Force, and, you know, the Air Force was kind of sexy, too, it was like new and, you know, Right. It seen to be um, more glamorous and so on. You know, like Navy is like so old school, you know, it's like now we've got these planes and these jets and, you know, they, they sort of had that patina of. Um, yeah, I thought the glamorous. Air Force was more powerful than the Navy because it has that mystique. Yeah, well, it did. It doesn't so much anymore, which is really interesting. You know, um, I sort of keep an eye on these things and the Air Force seems to be like 
rather quiet. And like I said, the Navy has their own Air Force, which is rather considerable. Uh, um, uh-huh, the Navy right. has a, a very large Air Force because the Navy has uh, Air, uh, Air Force, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, aircraft. Aircraft uh, carriers and, and supercarriers. Yeah. So um, very interesting. Now, see, but this gets into the whole um, public relations aspect of this because um, I don't know if you remember the show The Outer Limits. Do you remember that that program? Right. So the, the, the guy who created The Outer Limits was a gentleman <laughs> called Leslie Stevens, who was actually uh, Army intelligence. But his father was a, a very powerful uh, admiral who was the guy who created the gear that allows jet planes to land on aircraft carriers. It's, it's, it's a certain mm. kind of arresting gear. You know, if you've ever seen those commercials or movies or something, the, those sort of uh, metal wires and <laughs> clamps right. and all these and sort of things that, that, that stop the plane. The plane catches it, catches it to, so it doesn't go off the edge of the craft. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so here's the interesting thing, and this is where we get into this whole other topic of conversation here so um the guy who invented that his son um created what was really the first major ufo television program called the outer limits now here's the interesting thing about the outer limits is that um it arguably took a lot of cases that had been classified, uh, abduction cases and so on, that had been classified and sort of um, allegorized them for this, for this series. Mm-hmm. But um, one thing that I've spoken to Richard about at length, and, and one thing that I've detailed at length on the blog, is that I believe this Leslie Stevens um, was the, uh, the original driving force for Star Trek. That I think that uh, Gene Rod, because it's, one thing that I discovered, and I discovered almost by accident, is that Gene Roddenberry was um, basically set up in office with Leslie Stevens while he was, you know, uh, developing Star Trek. And oh. a, a lot of people, a lot of people who worked on The Outer Limits, who were, were Leslie Stevens' people, ended up working on Star Trek. Uh, you know, people like William Shatner and Leonard mm-hmm. Nimoy and DeForest Kelly and on and on and on. Robert Justman. I mean, a number of people who who are well known today as uh, being part of uh, uh, that that show, uh, Star Trek, the original series, uh, got their start working for Leslie Stevens, who, again, was the son of a very powerful and um, almost... Uh, let, you know, almost mythological kind of character because he was involved with uh, the Joint Chief of Staff and he was also involved in um, debriefing uh, Russian defectors. I mean, a very impressive gentleman with a, an incredible resume. And, of course, he, again, he was an inventor and, and basically invented the gear that allowed the United States Navy to take control of the entire planet. Right. And, and if they were sharing an office, I mean, obviously he had an impact on... <laughs> Obviously, he did. Well, I'll tell you something. Um, the, the, there's a gentleman who was involved in the original Star Trek, a guy named Herbert Solo. And uh, he's been very cagey about that. But he, he came out and said that, uh, you know, that a friend of his, quote unquote, was uh, actually the, the real creator of uh, Star Trek. And, um, you know, it, 
one thing that transpired when I read Herbert Solo's book is that one of his best friends was was Leslie Stevens, you know, uh, of course, from the uh, Outer Limits and so on. So, yeah, I think that um, it's very interesting that, uh, especially when you look at Star Trek, I mean, Star Trek is basically the Navy. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, Star Trek is basically, you know, Starfleet, it's Starfleet, right? It's a fleet. Right, 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 right. right, right. <laughs> ships. I mean, they, they, they follow um, naval uh, protocol, don't they? And mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the things that I noticed, particularly when the uh, Star Trek motion pictures started to get, become popular in the 80s, is that whenever they showed the Federation Council, um, uh, yeah, the Federation, you know, Federation of Planets, which is like the United Nations or whatever, it seemed to be suspiciously overpopulated with with Starfleet admirals in their uh, mm-hmm. red dress uniform, mm-hmm. and uh, that's one of the, the pictures that I included. Yeah, number four, number four. Yeah, so okay. I, I I have come to believe, you know, given the provenance of people involved in that program, that uh, I believe that Star Trek was was essentially a project of if not necessarily naval intelligence, then people who were associated with it. I think that um, there's a very powerful aura of, uh, of naval intelligence um, behind that series. And, you know, up until the, the, the present moment, I mean, you know, because there is a Star Trek program on the air as we speak, um, Star Trek Discovery, which uh, I was... Richard and I discussed, we found to be uh, rather shockingly uh, militaristic. So, you know, I wonder if that's part of upping the ante, so to speak. But also, uh, you know, when you think about um, UFO, uh, you know, particularly UFO religion, I guess, in this regard, um, L. Ron Hubbard, who was um, behind Scientology, was was also uh, U.S. Navy. And, And some have speculated and, you know, believe very firmly that, that Hubbard was um, military intelligence, uh, naval intelligence was, you know, was O&I, because, um, you know, he had that very famous uh, relationship with uh, Jack Parsons, the, um, the rocket uh, scientist who's uh, credited with inventing solid rocket fuel. And, um, you know, everybody sort of looked askance at that because, uh, Hubbard is a very famous, uh, I'm sorry, Parsons is a famous occultist, uh, dabbled in Satanism, uh, was very close with uh, Aleister Crowley, called Crowley his father. Uh, Mm. That's how he referred to him. They had a correspondence going. Um, And uh, Hubbard later claimed when pressed about his his relationship with, with Parsons, said that, you know, I was there to break up this, Lima cult on, on behalf of uh, naval intelligence. And everybody thought that's just, you know, Hubbard blowing smoke again. But there are some credible people who believe that he was telling the truth, that he was actually there to, uh, on, on behalf of uh, naval intelligence because the obvious interest in, in rockets. And, you know, of course, this is the end of World War II when you had uh, people like uh, Warner von Braun and the Peenemunda people, uh, you know, behind the V 2 rockets. Um, taken into uh, the United States. Now, the interesting thing about that, is, and this is a fact that not a lot of people realize, is that that was also a Navy operation, uh, operation uh, or project paperclip, operation paperclip. Um, you know, the, the whole project of importing in all these uh, very prominent uh, Nazi and German 
scientists, including von Braun mm-hmm. and, and people like that. Um, that was a Navy operation. And uh, I know exactly where they were flown into. They were flown into uh, the Naval Air Base in Squanta, Massachusetts, which was um, not far from where I was uh, you know, living uh, as, as a child. Um, I know that area very well. And they were also um, housed on uh, Fort Strong, which is uh, right off the coast of Squantum. And um, so it's very interesting because this is all Navy again. This is all Navy. And, uh, and actually there was a Naval Air Station um, on the other side of uh, you know, where I was living at, at the time. So the Navy was uh, you know, very prominent in, in that regard. So I, I think so, the Navy is very, is very interesting because they, they do tend to, you know, they don't have that glamour, like, again, that you said that the, the Air Force would have, and, or now that Space Force has. But I think that na- the Navy is, um, I think they basically, you know, they run the world economy mm. by default. Because without the United States Navy um, policing the shipping lanes, you would, they would be overrun by piracy. Oh, good point. Good point. So I'm curious, you, you mentioned that you lived near this place when you were a child. As, as a child, were you, like, getting vibes from the, Were you interested in this kind of topic? Did it... Oh, do you? you want to open a can of worms or what? <laughs> well, I, you know, I'll tell you. Um, very interesting that you should ask that because, um, again... My parents, um, just before I was born, lived in, in Wallston, which is near Squantum. Now, but here's the interesting thing again, because it gets back to this whole concept of ritualism that I think that is this, you know, I've spoken at length with Richard about ritualism, and I think it's so poorly understood. And, you know, you sort of have a, a sense of like... Um, mystification about it without people really understanding how central uh, ritualism is to the operation of, of the world um, and uh, how ordinary uh, ritualism is in, in, in so many regards. But in this sense, so you had um, Von Braun and his group flown into uh, Squantum, you know, the Naval Air, Air Force Base there, and um, at the other end of what used to be called Wollaston Boulevard when I was a kid, it's now called Quincy Shore Boulevard. It's like literally at the other end. You know, so this, this road, this boulevard has two ends. And one end would be where um, Paperclip was flown in. And the other end is uh, a part of Quincy called Marymount. And Marymount is um, where the first uh, large-scale pagan, European pagan, celebrations were held a uh, very famous uh, episode in american history uh, colonial history a gentleman by the name of thomas morton had started a um sort of a a rebel uh rebel settlement in marymount that the uh, the pilgrims all called mount dagan and uh, scandalized the um the the puritans because he held uh, a may day uh, celebration there, and he invited the the uh, all the local Indian tribes to come and Chris, join in. Yes, we're going to need to hold it. We're at the top of the hour. You're listening to the other side of midnight. Our guest tonight is Christopher Loring Knowles, and we shall return after the break. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. <laughs>